Well, do stand with me as we arise to read our sermon text this morning. You can turn your Bibles, I do hope you have one, to Luke chapter 1. As we said at the beginning of the service, we're taking a break as we always do the Sunday before Christmas from our ongoing series and expositions to think about our Lord's coming to earth and the incarnation. And so, Lord willing, next week we'll return to the Psalms of Ascent. But this morning we want to turn to what one scholar has called the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns, which is Mary's song in verse 46 through 55 of Luke chapter 1. But to give it some context, let's begin our reading in verse 39. So let me read verse 39 through 56, and then pray for our time, and we'll begin together. So hear now as God speaks to you through His Word. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And was Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Our great God and glorious Father, we do thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. We thank you for this morning, an occasion in which you summon us by your word and spirit to peer into the great mysteries of the gospel. That he who is co-equal and co-eternal with you became flesh. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like us. So give us ears to hear this morning. Give us a heart to obey you, to respond with faith and repentance. For we know we're not even promised another week, let alone another sermon. I'm made to preach as a dying man unto dying men with courage and clarity as you say I must. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, those of you that are familiar with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you know it's one of the most famous allegories in human history. It's very much simply the story of a man named Pilgrim who's leaving the city of destruction and he's making his way toward the celestial city. And if you know the story well, you know that he sets out with this large burden on his back. It's bringing him increasing anguish and increasing difficulty. And through many other trials and toils and troubles, he eventually, in the story of Pilgrim's Progress, walks through the wicket gate 
and makes it to a hill where there's a cross. And he stands underneath the shadow of this cross and he finds this burden that had been weighing him down for so long. It falls off his back and it tumbles down the hill into this tomb from which it would never return again. And kids, I wonder if you had been carrying around, think about it perhaps, as something like a hundred pound burden, a backpack on your back that you could never take off. And for months and months and months, years and years and years even, you might be so desperate for it to be let loose and then finally under the shadow of the cross, it disappears. What would be your immediate response to that rest, to that relief, to that even redemption? Well, you might just fall down on the grass and just think, finally it's gone. Maybe you shout for joy. Maybe tears of happiness flood down your cheeks. If you know the story of Pilgrim's Progress well, do you know what Pilgrim did? He just started singing. It's because it's, if you read your Bible well, whenever God's revelation of His redemption arrives, God's people sing. Think about Miriam and Moses in Exodus chapter 15 as God's people have been delivered across the waters of judgment at the Red Sea. They get across the other side and what do they do? They sing. When Deborah brings the victory in the book of Judges through Barak, the general, what do they do but sing? When Hannah's prayer for a child is finally answered, what does she do? She sings. What do the psalmists do in every season of life? They sing. I wonder how often you sing. We have this morning before us, of course, in Luke chapter 1, not just the revelation of God's redemption. It's also the revelation of God's Redeemer. And so it's completely expected in the sweep of Scripture that this young teenage girl named Mary, her immediate response is going to be one of joyful singing. So students, when when you arrive on Sundays, I do hope you are eager, full of anticipation to sing. Because sanctified Christians are singing Christians. Uh, We're going to see all the way throughout the Bible, this is not only true here in this present difficulty that belongs to us, here on earth, but it's even in the future heavens, the new heavens and the new earth, that so much of our labor, so much of our joy, so much of our eternal satisfaction will be found in singing. And so we want to think this morning about what this song has to tell us, not just about Jesus Christ, also about God our Father, and even along the way, ways in which His people walk in holiness. So a simple theme that we have today is singing about God's salvation in Jesus Christ, or we might say, singing about the coming Savior. And I want you to see two parts in verse 46 through 45. I want you to sing, first of all, uh, what it tells us about what to sing about the coming Savior, what to sing. And then we'll think about how to sing, how to sing about the coming Savior's birth. But before we get there, I want to set the scene, if you will, for uh, the concert that church history is often referred to as the Magnificat, before it erupts in verse 46. Let's set the scene a little bit in verse 39. You see what we're told. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now it's hard to know exactly, but just to perhaps give you some more of the context, as best we can tell, teenage Mary was probably no older than 17, probably no younger than 14. She had, if you just glance a few paragraphs up, I just recently heard from the archangel Gabriel that he is, or the angel Gabriel, that she is going to bear a son whose name is going to be Jesus. It's going to be a miraculous virgin birth. And so she's 
on her way to meet her cousin Elizabeth. And we know from earlier on in the chapter that Elizabeth herself is what? She too is pregnant. And so what you get then in this scene is actually uh, quite a portrait of what faithful worship looks like. You have an old worshiper and a young worshiper. You have worshipers that are going to soon bear men who God would use mightily, of course, in redemptive history. And as we'll see by the end of Mary's song, bring to fulfillment all of his covenant promises that have been made so many thousands of years before. And so momentous is this event. You notice what the baby, John the Baptist, does in Elizabeth's belly. We're told in verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And those of you that are mothers can recall times, I'm sure, when a baby leapt in your womb. And maybe the response was, calm down in there. Or, what, are you, what are you doing in there? Or as a father with our six children, you could sometimes get to the point where it seemed that there's a gymnastics competition going on within my wife's belly. And you could see her in pain and you put your hand and say, settle down, son. This is a house of calm and reverence. <laughs> but you know, the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth. And what does she do but prophesy? This is a reason for great delight, isn't it? Because what does she say in verse 42 through the end? Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? You know, it's quite shocking, isn't it, in and of itself? We don't know exactly Elizabeth's age. We know she's many decades older, no doubt, than Mary at this point. And here she says, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, why am I the one blessed that you, this young teenage girl, the mother of my Lord, would come here? She goes on to say, if you just glance down to verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord and depending on what you listen to during the Christmas season, by way of radio or perhaps other playlists, uh, many of you, no doubt, will have probably heard in recent weeks this song that was written a few decades back called Mary, Did You Know? And has this kind of poetic rumination on whether or not Mary knew exactly everything Jesus was going to do. And it's certainly true that as that poetic reflection goes forth, there are many things that Mary didn't know in express detail. But a lot of times when I hear it, I want to shout out, of course she knew. Did you know that this one you would soon deliver would soon deliver you? Well, yes. She'd been told that's exactly what was going to happen. <laughs> because look at what Gabriel said back in verse 30 through 33. He says, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. We'll come back to that in a second. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Yahweh saves. He'll be great and called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of it, there will be no end. So when Elizabeth says, what does Mary believe? That's what she believes. That she is, by this miraculous conception of the Holy Spirit, she's going to give birth to the Messiah the long-expected Savior and Redeemer, He whose kingdom will never have an end, He who's going to restore His people from sorrow and sickness and sin. So it's naturally then, coming to us in verse 46, that Mary begins to sing. So we want to think it now, first of all, what does she sing or what to sing? You notice verse 46, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. Now, kids, I don't know if... You perhaps had an experiment this semester in school where you had to pull out a magnifying glass. 
Maybe many of you, if not all of you, have used children a magnifying glass before. And, and does a magnifying glass make something bigger or something smaller? It magnifies it, so it makes it bigger, right? That's the idea of what's happening here with Mary. She's wanting to magnify, make big, make glorious, make great the God who has spoken to her, the God who is doing things, as we'll see in the song, for her. And first of all, what you need to see is she sings about God's grace. Sings about God's grace. Look at verse 48. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. It was in verse 30 that Gabriel said, you've found favor with God, which is something we could translate as, Basically, you've been graced by God. That's altogether stunning. That's why she's reveling in the blessedness that comes from God's graciousness. That this young teenage girl from a backwater town of Nazareth, she's the one chosen. She's the one selected. She's the one decreed from eternity past that she would be the mother of God's son. That she would be the one through whom the Spirit conceives this baby boy. That would come into the world to save sinners. That would come into the world to defeat the works of the devil. That will come in the world to bring about all God's promises. And so it's always encouraging when you see this young teenage girl named Mary. To recognize that God has always been about the business of using insignificant people for his sovereign purposes and promises. She's from a town that was despised even in her nation. She had no status, she had no wealth, she had no identity of importance or relevance, and yet she's the one that is blessed. She sings about God's grace. You'll notice number two, we're to sing about God's power. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me. He's the mighty one. The Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. Now, what she probably is immediately thinking in her mind is the mighty work of God, the miraculous work of God even, that's going to bring forth a baby from her womb even though she's never known a man. That's the reason to praise God. He's done mighty things for me, giving me a child in the most miraculous of ways. But you'll see that it's in the plural. Mighty things, not just a mighty thing. He's done mighty things. And as the hymn and the psalm here goes on, you're going to see all of the things that she is going to enjoy by virtue of this baby that's going to be born from her. So you sing about God's grace. You sing about God's power. Also sing about God's holiness. You see the end of verse 49. And holy is His name. You know, students, it's always a good thing to aim and perhaps begin with prayer that the Lord would work in your life through His Spirit, that you would live in such a way that people would notice that you love the Lord, that you stand out as lights that shine in a dark world. And if you do that, there will come a time in your life where someone might come along next to you and say, oh, I've heard that you are a Christian. Would you tell me something about your God? Or what do you believe about God? Could you describe him to me? I don't wonder how you would describe your creator and redeemer. There are many ways, right, that we could Emphasize certain attributes and characteristics. Some of the most common ones the Bible emphasizes. God is good. God is faithful. God is with us. He's here. Would you say quickly though, that God is holy. So holy in fact, it is His name, Mary says. 
You remember that scene in Isaiah chapter 6 when God's prophet of old, he's summoned to the heavenly throne room above and he gets there and thundering, these heavenly creatures thundering around God's throne. What do they sing? But holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is, is full of, of His glory. The Messiah is coming. A Savior is entering the world. So sing about His grace. Sing about His power. Sing about His holiness. Also sing about His mercy. Look at verse 50. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. You see verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things. It's certainly true that when God's mercy comes in the Lord Jesus Christ, it upends all of the world's systems, all of the world's values, because He comes and doesn't come to save righteous people, but unrighteous people. He comes not to fill His courts with influencers and important individuals. He comes to fill His courts with the hungry, with the weak, with the weary, with the burdened, with people who need mercy. And Christ Jesus is the revelation of God's mercy. But Mary goes on to say, notice verse 54 and 55, it's also the remembrance of God's mercy. For he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Which leads us to the fifth and final thing I want you to sing about this Christmas, God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. It's always been interesting throughout the years. We are rapidly coming to a close in our parenting, it seems like, where we've always had at least a tiny little child in our big van, and we're still there. And so it's often, you know, gathering the crew into the van can be its own unique endeavor. And it's not unusual that, you know, we'll be pulling out, I'll be pulling out of the garage, and maybe Emily's inside turning lights off, or a child has run in to grab a jacket or a pair of shoes that they finally were able to find as we're going to where we're going. And whenever you just put the car in reverse, and not everyone's in the car, it's now been for almost a decade that someone will chirp from the back, Don't forget Mama! Or don't leave Hudson! As though it was actually possible that we would leave Mama or leave Hudson. But it's a genuine fear of forgetfulness. Now by this time in Israel's history, it's been over 400 years since God had spoken to them. They're under the thumb of Roman rule. Perhaps many people were wondering, however irrational it would be, has God forgotten us? And here comes Mary saying, of course not. This baby, this Messiah that's going to be born, it's in remembrance, notice verse 55 once again, of his mercy to Abraham. And so it's here that you want to reckon with the reality that it's impossible to understand Scripture, Old and New Testament, connected together if you don't understand the Abrahamic covenant rightly. Because it was all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 that God told this man, Abram, even before his name was changed to Abraham, it's in you that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it's thousands and thousands of years later that now God is finally going to bring that covenant promise to fulfillment because Jesus Christ, Galatians 3 tells us, is the true seed, the offspring of Abraham. So I wonder then if you would say that you belong to Abraham's family. You know that old Sunday school song, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And I wonder if you are a child of Abraham 
Because the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ is that when you come to Jesus Christ in faith, you're a child of Abraham by faith, made partakers of all of those covenant promises that God gave to Abraham so long ago. The nature of our sin, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, has led us to being separated from God. We're strangers and aliens of the commonwealth of Israel. The promises have no part in our life. We're far off from them. But he says in verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 2, But in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That covenant mercy, that everlasting grace that was promised to all those who are in Abraham's line can belong to you. You can receive it even this day if you come to this Savior, born of a virgin Mary, that you might sing also today of God's grace, His power, His holiness, His mercy, and His faithfulness. But what about how we're to sing? What about how we're to sing? Not just what to sing, how to sing. Well, let's pass through one more time and highlight just a few things about how we're to sing about the Savior's coming. There was an American journalist in the 1920s and 1930s that was quite famous. His name was H.L. Mencken. And he was well known in part because he was a biting critic of Christianity. And he once said, the great contribution of Protestantism to human thought is the absolute proof that God is a bore. I suppose many churches and many professing Christians Make it seem like God is boring. But I've thought every time I've read that quote, heard that quote, seen that quote, just go into a good church, be around a true Christian, and watch him and listen to him sing. Because there's no boring God when the praise of God's people erupt. Because you see that, don't you? Number one, sing, enjoy, verse 47. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. It's quite striking. It's something to maybe meditate on later this afternoon. Two things from Mary's song, one of which is the degree to which it's utterly God-centered. It's utterly God-besotted. I mean, God is everywhere. It's all about what He has done, what He will do, who He is. And it's the greater your God is, the greater your joy is. The bigger your God is, the deeper your joy is. Sing in joy, number two, sing from humility. Once again, verse 48, he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. She's even said as much in previous verses, understanding her identity is one of humility. And maybe, kids, a simple way to think about this in your own life of, of praising and, and worshiping God is uh, you think about the Christian life as something like a seesaw. Uh, there's either Lord or self on end of the seesaw, and as one is exalted, the other is lowered. And the degree to which that self is mortified in your own heart will be the degree to which that Christ is exalted in your life. The degree to which, however, that pride runs amok and continues to run its rampant course throughout your own heart, your family's heart, and even your neighborhood's heart. You'll see Christ, what? Go down as, as you go up. It's true, if you've been in the church long enough, it seems to be often that the lowest of saints sing the loudest. Because they have nothing else but to sing. Prideful people, what do they need to sing about? They have all the abilities, all the wealth and the resources in and of themselves to bring about which they need, that which they need. But those who are low, poor in spirit, meek in soul, what do they have to cling to? 
but a spoken, sung word of how great God is towards them and His Son, Jesus Christ. You sing in joy, you sing from humility, and you sing, notice, with fear. Verse 50, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. You know, it's only a few weeks from now that many people will begin to make New Year's resolutions. And some of those will be spiritual, and that's an okay thing, and perhaps even quite a good thing. Maybe what you can resolve yourself to do in 2022, forever long the Lord keeps you here and keeps His Son away from us. As you might pray every day, Lord, increase my fear of you. Fear of you that puts sin to death. Fear of you that doesn't any longer live in the fear of others. Fear of you that knows your tender mercy and love towards us. Fear of you that trembles before you in awe and reverence. Fear of you that belongs, notice, from generation to generation. God is, of course, in the Abrahamic covenant, a God of families, a God of households, of parents. Let it be true in your training and praying and raising of your children that they know what it means to fear the Lord. Because they see it in you every single day. And they hear you sing it every single Sunday. So what to sing? Well, sing about God's grace. Sing about His power, His holiness, His mercy, His faithfulness. How to sing it? Well, sing it with joy. Sing it with humility. And sing it with the fear of the Lord and the depths of your soul. You know, the sport of my life, most of you know this, has been soccer. And soccer is an interesting sport for a variety of different reasons. Some of which lead people like me to love it. Some of which might lead people like you to dislike it. Uh, one of the things, though, about soccer that makes it unique is it's a singing sport. It's, it's unlike any other sport in the world. It's genuinely true. Uh, especially for important games, vital games. For 90 minutes straight, you have tens and tens of thousands of people singing. They sing about their own players. They sing about the other players. They sing about their own coach. They sing derogatory comments to the opposing coach. They sing about the pitch, they sing about the weather, they sing about the city, they just sing. And it can get very loud. There's been times in the past where I've stood in the tunnel preparing to walk out for a game and thousands and thousands of people are singing. There's been a few occasions in my life where it felt as though the stadium lights would shatter at the noise coming from the stadium. And you would know, even if you never played in such a game before, that that song, those shouts, do something very different to who's walking out onto the field. For the home team, what is it? Inspiring. For the away team, it can be altogether intimidating. The same song can do something very different. And that's true of Mary's song too. She's singing about the Lord Jesus Christ. To come to Mary's song is to come to an encounter with Jesus Christ, revealed in His Word, revealed through the song of His mother. An encounter with Christ is never a neutral one. I want you to see as we begin to close how this song creates a different response. It might mean something quite different for those of you in the room. Because you need to see, first of all, how Mary's song is a warning to the prideful. It's a warning to the prideful. Look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Christ's coming is a terrifying thing to prideful people. This coming king is coming to shatter all the world's powers that don't look to him in faith. 
coming to sweep away all those that remain in unbelief. To think that you can stand before the Lord with unrepented pride is as logical as a single speck of sand thinking it can stand in the face of an oncoming hurricane. It's just not possible. He's coming to cast down the world's systems. He's coming to overthrow the world's values. He's coming to upend that which man thinks is ordinarily good and right. Maybe it's a warning to you this day in your pride that His coming might be the most terrifying thing you could ever hear sung about. Of course, it's not just bad news. The coming of Jesus Christ is good news. It's not just a warning to the prideful. It's the wonder of the humble. The wonder of the humble. You see that again, verse 52 at the end. He's exalted those of humble estate. Mary even reveals her identity, doesn't she, in verse 46. She's a humble servant. That's language she even used when speaking to Gabriel. If you glance back to verse 38 of chapter 1. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. It's true, even in Christian churches, far too many church members want influence when God wants servants. And it's those who are humble in a servant's heart that find the greatest wonder and the mystery and the majesty of the incarnation. Because they understand exactly, or at least they understand better, what the Lord Jesus Christ did when He came. Here is the one who is unbreakable. It takes on a body that can be broken and was broken. Here is the one that needed no help. That now cries as a helpless baby in a manger. The metaphysical takes on the physical. The supernatural takes on the natural. The one who needed nothing now comes to give you everything. So what will you sing about this Christmas? How will you sing about this Savior's birth? Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us to have a heart that loves your word and loves your truth. For your word and truth, give us your son. Let's magnify the Lord this day. Let's magnify your son this week. Looking to him with hearts of humility and repentance. Knowing you raise up those who are made low. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we do respond with joyful, humble, fearful singing to the Lord as we sing our hymn of response, number 194, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel.